Okay. Recording is on. It says recording is on. So, um, all right. We're going to be talking today about a movie called Messiah of Evil. And um, so what are your thoughts on it? You've watched it. Yeah, I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. Yeah. Um, there were moments while watching it that I thought that the movie was kind of disorganized and didn't really have a plot. Yeah. But then there were parts where I appreciated those qualities, like it it set the atmosphere. Well, it is. It's one of those movies that seems incoherent at first, almost, but then some of the story elements end up going together surprisingly well. Like, yeah. Remember that move or, or that moment when that uh, Charlie guy is sort of ranting and saying, "You got, you got to kill your father," right? But it ends yeah. up being that he was not crazy. You know, it just seemed like a random thing for him to say. But towards the end of the movie, it actually kind of pays off. Oh yeah, spoiler alert! By the way. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I uh, like. Oh, go ahead. I like so when I first started watching this, um, and this could be part of the process of this will probably make me sound pretentious, but I didn't fully suspend my disbelief until like later in the movie because some of the acting is a bit hammy or over the top, but the acting works well for the movie too. It adds something nightmarish to it. Yeah, it's yeah. Not, it's not just one actor being obnoxious or bad at acting. It's like everyone kind of playing these really oddly paced roles with odd deliveries that works well because it contributes to the atmosphere of the movie. Yeah, it's a it's a very it's almost like it's sort of an artsy fartsy movie yet it's also lowbrow at the same time, which I which I kind of like. I mean the 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 house that uh, the character of Art Letty lives in is sort of like an art gallery, because her father is an artist. So that that immediately kind of sets it up to be almost like a highbrow movie or something, you know, like an artsy yeah. fartsy type of thing. But actually, it's um, there there are definitely plenty of like um, genuine horror movie type of moments. So it's not just you know like purely psychological. Yeah, I think the the most memorable part of the movie for me was um oh I might I'm not sure about character names but when the girl's in the grocery store and gets attacked yeah by, yeah by the I don't think they're zombies but they're zombie like yeah they're they're almost like zombie vampires or something yeah when she gets attacked and then so that scene is kind of. Like, there's something a bit mundane about it. Like, it looks a little too realistic and boring. But then it gets interesting, and then it has this super abrupt cut where it's like an outside yeah. view at night, and there's this narrator talking. And it works well because the, the abruptness fits the tone somehow. Whereas, like, other movies don't get away with abruptness so well. This movie uses it to its advantage. Yeah, this is a... This is a movie that definitely pays to watch more than once um, because, you know, at first it starts off being sort of a story about a missing man, which is her father, but it really expands beyond that. And you, you get the sense that 
everybody's sort of going missing in this town in one way or another, you know? Yeah. And there's a mysterious stranger who has a possible connection to her father. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, a lot of people mentioned that the, uh, that gas attendant guys sets the tone at first. And I, I wrote down the actor's name who played him. It's Charles Deerkop or Dyerkop, <laughs> however that's pronounced as D-I-E-R-K-O-P. And I think that'll, you know, this is a pretty decent example of a movie where these minor characters end up almost playing major roles because he really sets sets the tone for the movie. Because, you know, he establishes that the, uh, well, you, you mentioned mundane. So like the mundanity of life is sort of, it's, it's going away as these, uh, strange characters flood into their town or take over the town or are the town, I suppose. Yeah. And that, what did you think of that, uh, albino trucker guy? Um, so at, at first, the very first time I saw him on screen, um, he's an interesting looking character, but he struck me as someone that just looks odd but doesn't act well. Yeah. Um, kind of like some some of Sergio, Sergio Leone's work kind of has a lot of actors like that. They're kind of odd looking people that really set this kind of character setting but then they don't act well and that can throw off the movie but his act it seems like the rest of the cast adjusts to his style <laughs> i don't know if that's what happened but that was the impression i got was like everyone adjusted to him yeah well which, which I works think well for the movie he almost steals the show in a way like he, to me he's one of the most memorable characters in the movie yeah. because you know not only is he quirky and strange but he does have a personality and uh, you know the the whole beach mouse scene. That's that's kind of a classic moment for me. It's both a gross out moment and also like wh what the hell is going on here, you know? Because he swallows a beach mouse and he's like, "Would you like one too?" <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's a it's definitely a strange um, moment, and really lends lends this movie that nightmarish quality that I think it's pretty famous for yeah it almost seems improvised yeah, yeah like he just as an afterthought like someone happened to cry encounter a mouse i was like let's use this in this scene and it worked well yeah like maybe maybe he's like charlie uh charlie kelly from it's always sunny and he might carry around mice and dead birds and stuff in his pockets or whatever and he's oh, just yeah. and he's just taking one out for for just like a snack because yeah. he's got the munchies or something. Yeah. And the, the other would... cool thing about that character is he's, he's got these uh, living dead people in, in the cab of his truck, seemingly a lot of the time. So yeah. he, he almost seems to be like a loyalist to this dark stranger who rolls into town in a way. So yeah. I, I think, I think that's an interesting element to it too. So, what did you think of that uh, sort of the main dude character who almost seems like a, like an English teacher or something? Uh, I like that. 
So there's a there seems to be a shift with that character, like early movie versus later movie. Yeah. Um, like a, a shift with his acting style, and I think it fits well because it because the movie itself is pretty fragmented, and it seems like he was fragmented too, but in a way that worked well. That uh, it seems like everything I say about this movie is a bad quality in other movies, but works well here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a collection of, I don't know. I don't want to call them bad qualities because I don't think they're bad, but a collection of things that don't normally work are working very well. So so one interesting question I have about him is um, it, it almost seems like he falls in love with Arletti, the, you know, the main female character, because as time passes, they begin to bond. But at the same time, you know, he's he's sort of a distant character. And there's speculation that his character is that way because the actor who plays him was actually like a, well, he was one of the very first actors who came out as, you know, a gay man. So um, some people speculate that that's partly why the character is a little bit distant from the women that he's around. Hmm. It could be, yeah, it's. I, honestly, though, I, n- I never, I never watched that movie and thought that the character was gay, or whatever, because to me it just seems like a hetero dude, you know, and, and it seems like the guy who was playing him, yeah, he, he might have been a gay actor, but I think he was playing a, a straight character or a heterosexual character. Huh. I, I guess it never occurred to me sexual orientation just didn't come to my mind yeah. while watching it. Well, he, he does. That being said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind playing Nightcrawlers with that <laughs> albino guy to, to go back to a, it's an always, it's always sunny reference. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I like when, uh, our lady tries to investigate more about like her father and stuff and she discovers her father's cryptic letter and it's, it makes it seem like a, like a murder mystery, but, you know, it's it's not just about murder. It's about that dark stranger coming into town, and it's it's pretty strange to try to piece together a mystery that really can't be solved or properly understood. Yeah. And uh, another question I've got for you: What did you think of that Charlie guy? The 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 guy who's played by Alicia Cook Jr. You know, the crazed bomb guy who ends up being right about just about everything. Yeah. Is that was that same actor in House on Haunted Hill? Yes, he was. He's yeah. Yeah. He was the only actor I recognized. Um it's so it's I think him being right about everything kind of adds like so the movie starts off and they it's it seems to suggest that he's crazy or he has some kind of psychotic break but then it starts to show him being correct and it's yeah i think it adds a attention like uh, a lot of movies will have like some like the green mile or something will have like a mystical character that seems to be in touch with a reality that the audience and the other characters are not and I think this movie does that, but in a more interesting way. Yeah, it's um, it's a definite nod to the uh, 
sort of crazed character trope. You know, like yeah. the crazy Ralph from the Friday the 13th. Although, of course, this movie was before that. So, but I'm sure they had they had some movies before this one that had some sort of crazy character who was giving everybody a dire warning about some unfolding fate. Yeah. Um... And in a way, he, he actually does that in House on Haunted Hill, too, right? He's kind yeah. of similar in, uh, in, in his role in that movie because he's constantly warning them about, like, the ghosts in the house. Yeah. So I, I think Messiah of Evil manages to transcend transcend genre restrictions through its great performances. And I, I know that you've said that they're sort of disjointed performances, but you know, uh, I think, I think you agree that they're great in a way uh, for this particular nightmarish depiction. And there's definitely interesting and quirky dialogue and s some visual storytelling. So do you remember what kind of um, visual aspects did you like about this movie? I think the visual aspects were the strongest part of this movie. Um, if I think of uh, that Rob Zombie movie with witches, was that Salem? Um, or if I think of like George Romero, like other movies that have a strong visual effect, it yeah. seems like like this one really also uses it to its advantage where it, like the fragmentation is part of the the visual effect yeah so it's like if i compare this to another movie that seems really fragmented like uh a lot this of this might uh, be a bit of this might be a bit of a reach but like the the star wars prequels oh it's it's odd that you mentioned star wars because the actually the the directors of this movie were involved in writing elements of the original star wars Oh, okay. Because like I was thinking of the Star Wars prequels. Because that I always my mind goes there when I think of fragmented acting. Yeah. Because it looks like every actor is acting independent of each other. Yeah. Like there's no chemistry in any scene of that movie. Well, but, in that case, it's probably that way because they make it almost in a corporate laboratory. Yeah. Like like everything's like pre-planned and pre-screened, and that's how yeah. a lot of those like I guess. Uh, modern superhero movies are they might still work okay for what they are but you can tell there's some deeply manufactured aspect to them yeah so if i think of that fragmentation it takes me out of the movie but yeah. this movie's fragmentation drew me in yeah so it's the like every actor having these odd shifts or these odd choices of delivery kind of works with everything else with the yeah. scene this the like even weird things like sound design which isn't great in the movie but it works well for it like yeah. everything seems perfectly tailored for what the movie is and i think that's uh it, and it looks accidental like it was that's accidentally true. good but there's also something very deliberate about it too so yeah. it's well, you, you you can definitely tell there's some planning involved in what they were yeah. doing. It wasn't it wasn't all just some happy accident. And yeah. the dialogue between the characters, I don't think it's particularly clever or funny, but it, it's it's kind of realistic, while still being you know um, 
dreamlike. And yeah. for me, it at times kept me on the edge of my seat because you have this mundane existence that clashes with this nightmarish world that's developing. Yeah. So that that that's one of the main things about the movie for me is, you know, um, sort of the transformation between normalcy into this new crazy world, I think. Yeah, and it's I like that. I think you make a good point about the sterile feel that some movies have, like yeah. the highly manufactured side where it seems like every actor does their scene independently of every other actor. Yeah. Because um, I, I think this has like a... I don't. I was. I read a review of this, and someone called it very pretentious. And I, oh. I, I see the. I, I see like there's a pretentious setup, but it's like it doesn't go there. Yeah. Well. It, well, people will say that about any uh, any movie that has you know, I guess some um, some serious aspect to it sometimes. Yeah. And this movie is. Even though it has some goofball moments here and there, there is sort of a serious aura going on. And I think some people will say that about, or, or I guess any sort of experimental movie or, or whatever, people say it's pretentious. But, you know, I, I kind of don't like that sort of critique that much because it's essentially saying nothing Yeah. about the quality. Like, so what? So this wasn't like a, I don't know, uh it wasn't like some mindless slasher movie or something. Who cares? You know, yeah. not every movie needs to be that way. Yeah. I do think there's, I think that's a good point. There's no, even if they were striving to be pretentious that I don't think that matters or that doesn't make, make it less of a good movie. Yeah. I mean, if it's, if it's not a, if it's not a good movie being pretentious, it might almost be an advantage because then you, then you can laugh at it being so pretentious. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's almost yeah. a plus, I would say, really, to a lot of yeah. movies. So uh, a huge plus to this movie is that, to me, it, it addresses major yet often vague issues and taboos while making fun of them. And to, to me, it prevents the movie from getting too heavy and too artsy-fartsy. You know, um because it does make fun of like with, with those two women and that and that dude it seems kind of like like they're like they're scam artists or or that he's you know a playboy is just taking advantage of them so it seems to kind of make fun of um pr promiscuity in a way hmm, yeah. do, do you get that sort of yeah i like that that is definitely a fresh take on if you look at promiscuity in Friday the 13th or something like that, or one of those franchises, it's treated in sort of a, this formulaic way, where yeah. it just plays with the idea a little bit more. So it's odd because it seems like it's commentary on Friday the 13th, but it predates Friday the 13th. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the guy, even though yes, like I said, he's he he was in real life a gay actor. He does come off as sort of like a a playboy type, you know, in in the uh, in the sense that he's with two women, and then a yeah. third one actually even ends up joining him. 
Yeah, it does give the impression that he just kind of uses people and doesn't feel that close to them, like kind of a narcissistic yeah. um, dismissal of them when he's done. Yeah, he, he is definitely cold-hearted to the one who's like childlike or whatever. And sure, she's she's kind of annoying, but you know she's not a she's not deserving of that kind of treatment anyway. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he's definitely uh, he's definitely a little bit cruel to them. Yeah. So, you know, be, because of that character, you might say that uh, some of the moments of the movie touch on gender fluidity and sexuality and religious beliefs and all that kind of stuff. So I'm wondering if you if you had any thoughts like that while watching this. I think the gender fluidity is a fascinating thing because um, if you think of the 1970s, it would have been super ta- it's taboo still today, but it would have been even more so back then. Yeah. Um, even though there's like David Bowie and there's some expression of gender fluidity at the time. Um, but I think this kind of, it made me think of like a pure freedom. So freedom to be whatever you want to be. Like you can be free enough to eat a mouse or you can be free <laughs> enough to be gender fluid. Yeah. So I think there's this kind of loosening of societal restrictions that is kind of, is, I think that was what they were expressing. Do, do you think that the, uh, the, the dark stranger or whatever the hell his name is. Do you think he had something to do with like just completely shifting society into a new mode or something? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Because I know one of the things that George A. Romero said about night of the living dead and his other zombie movies is that the zombies actually represent societal change. I mean, to some degree, Obviously, that's like if you're being uh, a little bit more philosophical about it or whatever, or or looking at the symbolic artsy-fartsy kind of stuff. And not just saying, oh, those are zombies eating people, you know. Yeah, if, um, was George Romero the one that, did he do the zombie, did he direct the zombie movie that takes place in a mall? Yeah, Dawn of the Dead, yeah. Yeah, because I think the mall setting... I don't remember that came out in the mid eighties, didn't it? No, that that was um you know what you got me. I don't really remember exactly when it came out, but I know it was sometime in the seventies. I think oh, it was okay. probably after this movie. Oh, okay. Cause I like I I was in the mall yesterday, the local <laughs> mall by where yeah. I live, and some malls are kind of dead. Yeah. Like there's just nothing that goes on there. There, most of the stores are closed. There's a lot of vacancies. Uh, this mall seems like it's pretty lively, but I think there's something with malls doing something where they kind of strip away humanity. Yeah, it it does seem that way, which is funny because you know when I was a when I was a kid, obviously the uh, the mall was a a cool place to hang out. <laughs> so. It must have been fun to like hang around in like a commercial center, I guess. Yeah. But but back in the day, you know, that was one of the hip and hip and happening places, so to speak. And uh, so I I do want to mention some of the details about the directors. So the directors 
Hoik and Katz were a husband and wife team who were apparently involved in writing elements of the original Star Wars. And they also directed Howard the Duck. And they produced screenplays for American Graffiti and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So what are your thoughts on the directors now that you have that information, if you didn't before? Uh, I knew they directed Howard the Duck. That was the yeah. only thing I knew from them. Um, I think Howard the Duck is kind of an underrated movie. I don't think it's good, but it's... <laughs> I'd say it's I've not never good, seen that one, actually. It's a little bit strange that I never watched it because it's... It seems like a movie that some people would say, oh, that's a Wade movie, but I just never saw it anywhere yet. Oh, yeah. I, I saw it a while ago. I might have yeah. been in high school. Yeah. Um, so, but, but I do notice, like... Oh, go ahead. George, uh, George Lucas of Star Wars, I think his style is a bit fragmented. Yeah. And, and he's not great at writing dialogue. <laughs> well, um, actually, two, yeah, yeah. These two people came in to be dialogue coaches. Actually, yeah. I don't know if you knew I, that, but it's it almost sounds like you did know that beforehand. <laughs> yeah, but it, it seems like there's something with like George Lucas has a very fragmented style. I think too. Like, there's a lot of abrupt scene changes, and then they integrate a little bit later in stories. Typically yeah. with him. And it seems like this has that same kind of fragmentation with later integration. Yeah. Um, but I think this worked better for me. Yeah. Well, it's, it's definitely more of a, it's more open to interpretation, I think. Whereas like a movie like star Wars, well, th there's, there's less vagueness going on. You like, you know what the characters want, you know, their motivations. You, yeah. Like if you're paying attention at all, you'll probably understand what the overarching story is and all that kind of stuff. And that's why a movie like Star Wars is better guaranteed to be successful because it's more, it has more crossover appeal, I think, because it's more easy to understand. Yeah, it's uh, like if the alien looks evil, it probably is. Yeah, like exactly. The lords have an evil look. They have glowing eyes. I think their eyes turn yellow or something and like a dark uh, clothing motif. Yeah, and in, in this movie, like there's something with the eyes that bleed, which is definitely a giveaway. But at first, at first, these bad characters or these whatever evil characters, if you want to call them that, they, they can look normal enough, right? Yeah. But at some point, something changes with them and <laughs> they'll come after you. And And one thing I like about them too is that they they're not just like zombies they can actually um you know plan and strategize and stuff like that which makes them a, a little bit more human i guess yeah it's um <coughs> excuse me i was thinking of like resident evil video games and evil dead yeah so there's something where there's, there's this theme in both those where there's evil versions or people become evil, like they become these laughing, grotesque, demonic critters. Um, yeah. Like in the first Evil Dead where um, they lock one of the, 
They lock that one lady in the basement, and she becomes more and more of like this evil hag. Yeah. Um, but, so there's there's kind of like this. You can't trust anyone because they yeah. could be possessed by. You can't like Bruce Campbell can't even trust his own hand. That's true. Yeah. So I think there's something like that here, where there's that sharp contrast, kind of like um, like hug me, I'm scared, or too many cooks. Do you know of those videos? Oh yeah, yeah. I've there's I've this... seen too many cooks. That one's definitely odd. <laughs> it's yeah, funny there's, though. There's sharp contrasting elements that work well as kind of this subtle commentary, but also um, really brings up the atmosphere in a unique way. Yeah. So I'm I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the stars of this movie. We already yeah. talked about that main that main guy who's like a player or a pimp, that dude. Yeah. But uh, the actress Mariana Hill played Arletti, and she was in some Western films like El Condor and High Plains Drifter. She was also in Batman, uh, another horror movie called The Baby, where. Uh, have you ever seen The Baby? No. Oh, that's a movie where uh, basically this family is is claiming that uh, their son, who's like an adult, still has the mentality of a child. And then a social services lady gets involved and she thinks that they're deliberately like forcing him to remain as a child. It's an interesting movie. <laughs> And she was also in The Godfather Part Two, and Star Trek, among other things. Hmm. So that's just to give you an idea of you know what she was involved with. Uh, the uh, sort of bratty, almost childlike character was played by Joy Bang. She didn't really star in that many things, but according to IMDb, she was in a Woody Allen movie called Play It Again, Sam. And then the, uh, I'll just call her like the prettier, more adult woman in the movie, other than the other than Arletti. She was played by Anitra Ford, and she was actually a Price is Right model. And uh, the only movie that I remember her from other than this is called Invasion of the Bee Girls, which is kind of a shitty movie about, uh, well, it is what it sounds like. These, these girls actually were like, they have bee-like qualities and they have sex with men and kill them or something. It's just a bad idea for a movie. Yeah, it sounds like a bee movie. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then there's the, uh, the other guy that we talked about earlier, Alicia Cook Jr. So she was on House on Haunted Hill, Rosemary's Baby, Blackula. The Maltese Falcon. He was also in El Condor, which uh, the lady who played Arletti was in as well. And uh, let's see. He was in Salem's Lot from 1979. The, and The Man Who Broke 1000 Chains. And an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The A-Team and Elf. So that dude was in a lot of different things. Very prolific career. And um, so finally, that guy who plays the albino trucker, Benny Robinson, that was his only role, believe it or not. So uh, that's a little bit unfortunate, I think, because 
I think he had a lot of promise to do other things, but I guess that was all he really wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. So do you have any other thoughts on this now that I've hogged up so much time? Uh, I think this movie... So kind of at a glance, this looks like an old sort of garbage movie, like B-movie, but I think it has a lot of hidden gems and it's worth watching if you don't take it too seriously. Yeah. And you kind of just let the fragmentation happen. Yeah. Um, like, don't try to follow the plot too closely because it's it's just not going to help. <laughs> no, no. There's not really a plot per se. It's more like an event or a series of events. In, in a way, yeah, well, that's odd that you mentioned that because that, really that's sort of how life itself happens, right? It's not like yeah. everything is truly plotted out. Although a lot of things are, but you know, really the story is a bunch of loose strands that can be tied together if you want. That's really how I see it. Yeah. So have you decided like, if you want to do another one of these episodes again in the future? Yeah. Um, I, I recall in an earlier message you sent me, you said I could pick. Yeah, if you want to pick another one. If you want to pick the next one. I had an idea for an X-Files episode. Okay. But I was thinking of other things, too. There was a particular yeah. X-Files episode that I can't think of the name of. It's um, it's it's a character's name. It's like Frank's Quiet Repose. Hmm. Um, it, you don't need to watch the previous episode of X-Files. You don't really need to know. I guess it helps yeah. to know the premise that Mulder and Scully are FBI agents that study odd events, but that's really all you need going in. Well, you know, one interesting thing about this movie is that it kind of ties into the last movie that I reviewed here, which is called City of the Living Dead. Both of these movies have characters that bleed from their eyes. <laughs> I carumba. <laughs> all right. So um, I guess we'll, we'll call it a day for now. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll post this episode soon and, I'm sure I'll have you back at some point unless we both die or something, but let's face yeah. it. That's probably not going to happen. <laughs> you never know. That's true. That's true. Well, all right. Um, have a good day. Oh, thank you. You too. Yeah. Bye. Bye.